Hey everybody, welcome to Answer the Call. I'm Kelsey Kemp. This is a podcast for high-performing Christian professionals who want to find their calling and lead a rewarding career that's aligned with it, so you can make an impact with the decades of work ahead. Today, I get the honor of introducing you to Julia Rose Childs. She is the founder of Fee Negotiation, a company she created to equip women to advocate for themselves through the negotiation process in preparation, practice, and personal coaching offering a tangible way for every woman to be involved in the fight for equal pay. Not only that, she also, if you can believe it, serves alongside another entrepreneur as the integrator of the growth team at a legal tech startup called Scribe.ai. While I couldn't be more impressed with Julia Rose's gumption and her creativity in the startup space, What I treasure even more about her is her generosity and openness that you'll hear in this conversation in the way that she shares about her journey with advocating for herself as a professional learning to thrive with dyslexia and ADHD. Y'all honestly should have seen the questions I came into this interview prepared to ask. I was fully ready to just talk about how to negotiate your compensation, but instead we got an even richer conversation about how to advocate and negotiate every part of your career, not just compensation, but even the role itself. So you could thrive no matter what your circumstance is, even if you're learning how to excel in systems that weren't originally designed for you or if you relate to Julia Rose and I in being neurodivergent professionals. It turns out that we were both homeschooled, as you'll hear, after getting diagnosed with neurodivergent conditions in our early years. For me, it was ADD, uh, and leading to similar realizations for both of us about how the school system and other, and even actually traditional corporate life, not being environments that were really, it felt like, made for us. And in the process of figuring out a way to thrive, we both used an entrepreneurial spirit to figure out ways to make up our own careers by focusing on what we valued most. In it all, you'll hear Julia Rose share how you could advocate for yourself no matter how you're made and what you're aiming for. As you enjoy this conversation, remember that the best way to support the show is to text it to a friend and leave a review to let us know how this impacted you. All right, now let's dive into today's episode with Julia Rose Childs. Julia Rose, my friend, I am so grateful you're here. You have a crazy story to tell. Can't wait to get into it. I'm going to just kick it off with the most basic question. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you? Uh, Human being on earth trying to live uh, mainly a biped. Okay. Well, um, that's like (laughs) one time I was in this interview for a Christian organization and they said, um, describe the gospel. And this guy, I was on the other side of the interview doing, asking the questions. And this guy says, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> and I thought, I think he actually understood the assignment better than anyone else. Like, wow, that, that like called me higher to be more specific in the questions I asked. Because I'm like, well, he just played me like so hard. <laughs> it's mainly my cheap way of getting out of a question I can't answer. 
Mm, very well or succinctly uh let's try this again what city do you currently reside in I live in DC by accident by accident Uh, yes (laughs) what we'll get into that yes I'm sure um Um, current job titles uh mm, uh, Mm. current (laughs) job titles we're using the catch-all integrator at scribe ai and then founder at fee negotiations and then uh soon to be phasing out of zero to one associates right now with isaiah mcpeak so i think those are the three technical titles that are on my linkedin i'm more than willing to bet you have a few buried side hustles in there too just a few just a few i've I've, i I knocked i i found a way to put all my side hustles into those three buckets Mm. right now and so if they don't fit in those buckets I'm not allowed to start them that's my new kind of like bright line is I'm not allowed to start anything new right now you and me both wow (laughs) I was like literally having to tell oh my gosh this makes my pit sweat my pit not one pit I have two pits they both of them were sweating this is a double pit sweating a situation sometimes it was bad even my palms were like kind of thrown into the situation because I had to turn down something I was like I'm actually I committed to too many things and so I was just telling myself this week no new things so you and me both um maybe I should use that like I have a job title I'll even allow myself three job titles and then you're cut off Kim (laughs) no more Uh I feel like you could do anything so mm, the no is the hard thing very nice um how about this? Can you please describe what the heck an integrator into zero to one associate is? Because those are some real 2022 oh, yeah. job titles. Just so <laughs> I love my my boss. Um, technically, it's the same boss for both roles, um, okay, which we'll get into the story. Crazy, fun story. Um, so both of us think titles are just, excuse my French, BS. No, pretty much. Because they're only externally facing and they're only there for like the small part of ethos that is like virtue signaling mm. credibility to an extent. Um, and so when he said, we, we described, my role is very clear. Um, and when we described my role, there is not a traditional title for them. And so for Isaiah McPeak.com, he runs a startup consultancy. And so I was just basically like, I, consult startups from zero to one and so we just decided zero to one associate would be a very clear because it absorbs all of it um and then for the integrator role i got that moved down from the brain because that to me was so intimidating and scary like like, literally on like if a next company does a background check you were about to have the brain as a job title welcome to being a startup because no, for real because it's 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 the idea that when a startup's so small and it at it's like beginning stages the first 10 7 to 10 employees don't have one hat and you cannot it, well you can't have one hat but also you it's not strategic to have one hat because mm-hmm. you need to they're so interconnected the systems that you can't have defined silos so the best way to describe the integrator is in the growth side, you have marketing, product, and sales. And at the center of that Venn diagram, there's the customer knowledge. 
everything that has to do about the customer. And where my kind of role is to sit in between at that customer point and synthesize all the information from product growth marketing and make sure that the questions that the sales or team is running are the questions that product needs answered to figure out the next section and that marketing knows what sales is doing and sales knows what marketing is doing and kind of creating this brain and nervous system. Okay. It makes um, total sense now. So that's like, <laughs> it's the, that's what I meant. It's to me, it's the information synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like what we mean by integrator, but I felt like integrator was a legitimate word where customer brain just seems creepy. Kind of. Yeah. I could see that. I think yeah. you made it uh, the right call on that one. Also, integrator is a legitimate job title that's cropping up more and more now. And it really means, from what I've gotten a pulse on so far, um, it's like for some organizations, they'll treat it as they have the visionary who has, I guess, made enough sales to where they could start accomplishing their dream, which is to off put all detailed operations onto someone else. And then the integrator will coordinate with other parties to actually make it happen. And they'll be into the detailed operations, but more in an oversight, supercharged project manager role that has a little bit more of a strategic voice, even to the visionary, they'll say like, okay, based on that idea, I think we should go in this direction or this is what the product should look like. So the, I love that you, I'm actually getting to talk to someone who has that job title because I'm hearing <laughs> it more and more. Um, and then, wait, what was the other one you said? No, you said zero to one. You described that. All right. <laughs> Me in real time, quite painfully, slowly wrapping my mind around <laughs> your job functions. Um, so I'm still wrapping my mind around them. So you're There's in no the help. key entrepreneurial, uh, yes. what is that? Like you build the engine as you're taking off. Oh yes. That's currently how the CEO and I talk about it every day. I'm like, okay, right now we have half a wing, but we're about to jump into the air. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. it'll just kind of like paddle like this. Maybe it'll go, it'll just turn into a helicopter. Actually. That would work. That would work. As long as we get flight. <laughs> that's right. So one thing that I would love to dive into, you were talking, you and I were talking more before we started recording about what's the through line in your story? What's the theme? Um, And I couldn't believe how much you and I can relate on this of from childhood, always being a little different and that actually being interpreted as a disadvantage, uh, particularly within the realm of dyslexia. Um, I don't personally have that, but you shared that you do deal with that. And then uh, ADHD and how you were sharing the system hasn't worked for you. So you had, you just assumed that you were going to have to work to make a new one, which is a very brave assumption. You didn't have to, or you did it's not guaranteed that you would have such a strength of will to press through that and say, I will still carve out a path. You could just lay back and say this, I fail according to this system, but you didn't. And so can you start just telling that story from maybe around college time Sure. of how you started to forge your own path? So I think it starts a little before college time. So I'll give a quick overview of Kelsey's, like, I love how you ask these questions because they're all encompassing 
it's not just, okay, where did you start? It's okay. Why? And like this mm-hmm. movement through that. Um, so starting on college time, I wasn't supposed to go to college, like was not planning it. Uh, summer of senior year, I was planning to go to Europe because to me, college seemed again, a system that wasn't set up for me, it seemed kind of ridiculous that I was spend four years in a subliminal state that you're not an adult and you're not a child. I grew up homeschooled. And so I knew I could teach myself. I don't. Um, And really it was my homeschool experience that set me up to know that just because there's a system doesn't mean you have, that system works best for you. Uh, So a little background, my brother is the perfect system child and he is the perfect child. Uh, He could read, write, and multiply by the time he was four and knew what multiplication was. It wasn't just like a rote memorization. So my mom being an educator by training said, well, I'm not gonna send you to kindergarten so that you could then go learn your ABCs when you already know how to read. So she thought she was the perfect mother, perfect teacher, had the perfect child. And then I came along and ruined all of those assumptions no. because I, had dyslexia, which we didn't find out until I was like nine and had ADHD, which I didn't find out until last year. So she went through this amazing journey that said, oh, Julia's sitting in a classroom. She's not going to learn that way, but there's something inside her that's really intelligent and excited about life. Let's teach her how she learned. So a great example of a system not working for me was I kept, my favorite question was, it should be this way. So my mom would give me these little readers, um, little reader rabbits to teach me how to read. And because the text didn't match the pictures, I'd be like, no, that's not how the story should be. And so my mother took the time to copy all of the books into little pieces of paper, cross out the words on the page, and then have me tell the story of what it should be. And then I would read the story because then I was actually interested in it. The most like typical God ADHD thing of I'm not going to do it unless I'm interested in it. No, for real. That I, I cannot believe how much that sentence just resonated throughout my entire being. <laughs> I won't do it unless I'm interested in it. I know it's like, I've never really, I guess why that resonated and hit me so much is because I, I haven't uh, liberated myself to say that out loud. And I've operated under a lot of shame my whole life because of how extraordinarily, um, entitled that sounds that I won't do it unless I'm interested, but there's just honestly not a huge use in going against an ADHD child's brain. It just won't work. Look at the statistics and the case studies. They just won't conform most of the time you have to find a new way to me it's actually really freeing from a neurobiological standpoint so that's my current like if I wish I could I would and my wife keeps saying no to myself because I'm like oh can I go get a master's in neurobiology because that's what I'd love to do right now um because it takes it from a shame thing of I'm not going to do it unless I'm interested in it to knowing oh ADHD is a lack of dopamine in the brain What does dopamine do? It is the entire chemical that's designed to make you go from an idea to an action. It is the motivating factor to actually act. So people that don't have ADHD 
I'm sorry, if you don't have dopamine, if uh, studies have removed dopamine from people's brain, or actually mice are my favorite example, is that a mouse who ha- doesn't have any dopamine in its brain will see food, still feel delight by food, but it will not move one body's length to the food if it doesn't have dopamine. Dopamine is the thing that says, I'm going to act on this. So there's no, so that's why when I'm when we're going through something and say, oh, I'm it's an interest-based nervous system, is because I'm not gonna read the book because it's not how it should be. Mm-hmm. And my brain knows that I'm not gonna act on it until I'm interested in it. Then my brain gets dopamine and I can be enough present to read the book. Then we add in the dyslexia where I can't even read the book, even if I was interested <laughs> in it. But you have to have that dopamine where it's not a shame thing. It's recognizing, oh, my body doesn't produce this on a chemical level. Yeah, that's remarkable from a young age that your mom enabled the, well, okay, if that's just how it works, then let's do what works for you. And so you, I could just see glimmers of how you've carried that into adulthood because you, it seems haven't allowed yourself to get shut down by uh, the system doesn't work for me. It's not designed uh, quite yet. I think that we're getting a little closer maybe, but it's not quite yet optimized for neurodiversity. Um, But instead of getting shut down, you're just like, all right, well, I'm going to take the cards and rewrite the story. And part of that is it's not that shiny or nice of rewriting the story. Um, so a good example is like, I wasn't supposed to go to college as we started saying, um, because that kind of like, it should be this is my driving factor I realized mm-hmm. is growing up, I knew I, I, there was problems in the world I wanted to fix because it just shouldn't be that way. And that's what got me frustrated. And so it was those moments of frustration. Um, but I realized pretty early that doing it, the Julia rewrites the book way wasn't going to get me into the rooms and the conversations that I needed. So I did need to go get a university degree because I wasn't going to be able to succeed without actually having those frameworks and had to take the humility to say, oh, actually, no, I actually do need to learn it from other people and I do need to be challenged. Um, And such a God thing in that I went from one week, graduating senior year, to not going to college, I remember praying one night and I was like, Lord, you say, if you, you seek your way, you will guide and direct our path. So please, <laughs> you, you can't lie. So here I am. Um, I had finished what he had said for me to do in high school. I was like, okay, what's next? I find that like God doesn't, for at least for me, illuminate the next step until that step's completed. You don't get the whole path. You just get, and now, and now, and now. And I've had to do with accepting the and now. So I was like, okay, what's and now? And the next morning, I kind of woke up with this like burning desire to go to the King's College. And I was like, I don't even like I'd heard of King's once. And I was like, what is that? Like, why do I want to go there? Um, and so I remember researching it and they had this degree called polis, politics, philosophy and economics. And I was like, oh, if I want to fix any big system, my big the world should be this way. We shouldn't have human trafficking. I need to know the pipes, politics, philosophy, economics. Um, so crazy whirlwind story. And I know your podcast is about how like faith interplays with career is that I was like, Hey mom, I kind of want to potentially go to university now. Um, I'm thinking of the King's college because they have this PPE degree. 
It will get me the tools to do the should that I want to do. I just don't know what that should is yet. What do you think? And so she was the one to do the work to like call the university, say, hey, what does she need to apply? We hadn't done my transcript because I'm a homeschool, so I didn't really need one yet. And we were waiting until later to do it. So we did my home my transcript. They sent it in. They're like, hey, she can probably get in for like the January term. We're not sure yet. Um, it was May at this point. And then the next morning they call back and they're like, hey, so she's in. Crazy story. The people that needed to be made the decision weren't even kind of supposed to be in the office that day. So you're gonna have to wait till next week. I just, the, our liaison was like, I just happened to be having a conversation with them because they happened to come in that day to the office. So you're like, oh, everyone that's needed is here. Let's make a decision. Here's your offer. You can start in the fall. Great. We hadn't had the God. time to tell my father yet. What? Legitimately, my dad thought I was leaving for Europe after the summer of working. Um, we call him on a Friday and was like, Hey, do you want to go get tacos? And he, so he's just thinking, Oh, I'm getting tacos with my, like my girls. So it's a date night with my daughter and my wife, sit him down, order around tacos. And I'm like, so dad, I'm going to college. I think, <laughs> what do you think? Um, and he's the best. He's so supportive. And then like, he's like, well, if you want to go, we need to go visit. And so he's like, I'm take off work. We'll next, we'll drive up to New York. We'll drive up to another college. So you can have a comparative event, like benefit of it. Um, and let's go. And so to go back to your question, like building these systems is that university wasn't easy. Yeah. It was me deciding I need to conform to this and it's going to be so difficult. And it was four years that were really difficult. Yeah. I had to give up the idea that I'm not going to graduate with a 4.0 GPA. Mm -hmm. My, I'm not going to graduate with 3.5. That's not going to be where I succeed. So how am I going to get that like, competitive advantage to me it was internships so I did an internship at startups every single semester so by the time I had finished college I had worked for five startups oh my gosh which meant and I was also working so I meant 80 to 90 hour weeks while in university what? so that's what I'm saying it's like it's not just a oh you redefine it you rewrite the book no it takes copying the book crossing yeah. out the words and being willing to do that mm-hmm yeah. And I didn't do it in a great way because I didn't know what I was doing. So like I look How back could, at college yeah. where I'm like, oh, I made so many mistakes, but it was one of those, you're trying to fit yourself in a system that doesn't work for you because sometimes you have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful that you told that part of the story because if we just glossed over, I mean, cut back to my initial statement of like, wow, yeah, it's so great that you just boldly rewrote the story all the time. And you're like, no, I could not do that. <laughs> I did actually have to conform to the system as did I, I, um, I can't believe how similar our stories are. I had to start in the spring. I did not get that miraculous, uh, turnaround, but I was pursuing professional ballet or, uh, trying to become a professional ballet dancer and got so injured and it was way too late and it was already June. So um, I had to figure out how the heck to put my homeschool curriculum on a transcript, just like you, and figure out how to take the ACT is the, I only had one test date that I could take until, uh, so I could turn in my application on time for January. And I got in and they said, make sure that you, some people gave me the advice, definitely don't apply for the business school that you want because, um, 
that's too hard to get into and you're probably not going to make it. Why don't you apply for something like education and then switch a year in? And I was like, I will not do that. (laughs) And um, it all worked out, praise God. But just like you, we, of course, had to play by the system. And my pain was, I felt so humiliated. I couldn't study with anyone because, you know, when you do a group study, people are like, oh, is the answer D? And I remember crying one time because I tried to study with a group. And by the time that um, they're like, okay, let's move on to question 13. And these two girls I was with, one of them about 30 seconds later said, oh, do you think the answer is E? And I was rereading the second sentence for the third time to try to get it. And that, oh, just like, makes me wall up of how stupid I felt in college, but I just had to put in double the hours. Like literally if people thought a test was four hours worth of studying, I would do eight, um, just to try to get through. So I really appreciate you sharing that part of the story too. And having to cut your teeth on some hard stuff. I can't imagine going from thinking and the amount of commitment it takes to be a professional athlete and then having that dream and goals just taken from you having to do that like turn around and pivot that's so impressive you did that so quickly thank you it was yeah by god's grace i'm sure that you feel that a lot in your journey too um and then years later therapy because i realized this, i suppressed my emotions from that for like 7 years oh, well the funny thing is we, we keep talking and we're going to have to do like an offline talk so it's much longer yeah, definitely. The, the listeners probably don't care but like i was had a very similar situation in that I was my entire life was going to be an Olympic skater, figure skater. What? And so like, that was my version of getting outside the system is I'm going to go do Olympic figure skating. Um, because I actually, the like spinning on the ice calmed me down. That's what my mom's therapy was for what? me. She's like, uh, you need to spin really fast, go do ice skating. Um, and then life happened and I got Lyme disease and my joints were ruined. And like, I, there was one night I just remember being like, I will not be able to make the Olympics. I am not competitive enough. My joints are ruined. Like, it's not going to work. And being like, I don't have that next thing to go search for. And I didn't find that next thing for six more years. And so that's <gasps> why I'm so same, impressed. It that was you, literally six years I'm, for me where I thought I will never have a passion again. Yes. I will never want to pursue something with all of my being ever again, because I, I look around at people at, for me in business school and we're all just pretending we care about what we say we're caring about for recruiters to get these jobs, but nobody really is fired out about what they do. And oh, wow. like you said, it's really hard. Like you, as an ADHD or a person with ADHD, if you're not really interested, it's kind of like lights out. <laughs> right. Right. And it's also that like, I'm, I, I'm so impressed that you went from the pivot of, I want to do this professionally to then like, Oh, Hey, university so quickly to find that. That's so impressive. It sounds like you grappled with that too. And so from your internships and deciding, Mm -hmm. all right, well, if grades aren't my thing, internships are going to be my thing. And if it needs to be 80 or 90 hour weeks, it's going to be 80 or 90 hour weeks. Tell us more about, how you've continued to create your own career from there. Sure. So part of it was realizing what was that thread again. So after not having a thread in my life of this is what I really want to accomplish, 
doing those internships made me realize I switched from PP&E to business, actually, because I realized in an ancient philosophy class that I'd rather have my ancient philosophy over wine than in a classroom. And I was tired of talking about problems instead of fixing them. And I was like, what are we going to do about this? Um, And so I just went to business because it's all about solutions. And so realizing that, like, this is how things should be and finding the solution was my version of that next, like, this gives me energy and exciting. So I didn't know what I was going to apply that. This is interesting how we get solutions to something else. I was waiting for that X to put into the algorithm. Um, so part of that is actually the story of feet. I don't know if you want to get into that now, because that's where yes. building that came. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So your company, let's go. Let's go. Uh, so Fee, the funny thing is, I, so Fee is started as a negotiation consultancy for women. Um, but going back to my history and trying to timeline it before this call, I realized that I actually started negotiating before I was trained how to negotiate at university. And I thought it was after this really pivotal class that I had. Um, but it was because of, like you said, working outside the system is I'm so used to having to advocate for myself and say, no, I need one of them was spinning. Like and when I'm taking classes, uh, a test, I need to be able to go to the back of the room and spin really fast to help focus my brain. So I would have to advocate for myself in front of a professor and say, hey, these are the accommodations I need. The school doesn't accommodate me the way that I need because extra time doesn't help me. Yeah. I need the accommodation of you being okay with me walking to the back of the class and spinning. And if that's going to distract other students, I need to go into a separate room with a proc go to the back spin for a little bit and be able to like focus on writing um and other weird things like that but that was like one of the weirdest is like saying hey I need to go spin um in a test I'm not doing witchcraft uh so part of that was then applying those into the uh jobs that I needed to be able to support myself through college and my internships so the first thing I uh negotiated was my uh nannying salary because I was nannying uptown to this bratty child who was just miserable and <laughs> was paying me good wage, um, but randomly got another offer to nanny for this adorable little British family right next to my school. But the hours were going to be different. And so I remember sitting there with my budget going, I can't afford to lose these hours, but I really don't want to work for this other family and I really want to work for them. So it took me sitting on the couch, almost like panicking, going, I don't know if I can ask him for more money uh, to nanny his children, but that's what I need in order to make this shift. And then doing that and him going, yeah, that works for us. And he going, oh, I can advocate for myself and say what I need because they also need me, um, which then led into my first negotiation at my internship where I was, and which kind of plays into negotiating strategy is I had negotiated up from $20 an hour to $25 an hour as a nanny. And my internship was only offering me 15. So I was like, hey, if I'm going to do a $10 an hour wage cut to go do this internship, that's going to be really rough on me. And so I was able to work through what that negotiation strategy was because I needed it to work for me. Because I needed the internship because I knew that I wasn't going to get above a 3.1 GPA. So that kind of is how working outside the system plays into the negotiation, which brings us to fee and career stuff is that I was sitting in a negotiation class because I'm a business major. So we get to intro to negotiation. 
And one of them was salary negotiation. And our amazing negotiation professor let us know that 93% of women fail to negotiate their starting salaries. 93% is insane. But what's even more insane is that that loss of wages, which is about $5,000 in New York on average, and it accounts for 7% of the wage gap. And it, for at that time, and over your course of your career, it's going to compound to a million dollars lost just because you didn't negotiate your starting salary. And so I'm oh, sitting hurts. there. Oh, yeah. Oh, hurts. no, it hurts. I, and this is where it goes back to like that internal, this isn't how it should be. Mm-hmm. And me getting frustrated because I'm sitting in this class going, I can't afford to lose a million dollars. The woman sitting next to me can't afford to lose a million dollars. The art student across the hall can't afford to lose out on any money, but they're not going to get this. I only get this because I'm in business major, but the engineering students need this just as much. So I remember just kind of getting zoning out after that in class and just being so pissed off and walking out of class going, this is not okay. Why is the system set up this way? The system shouldn't be this way. Um, this is literally me walking around my office in the, in the um, when I was two years in into consulting and just looking around and I was like, everyone, sorry, consultants love y'all, but like everyone is miserable and nobody actually likes this life. And I totally am aware that some people actually do. Please, this is, I'm speaking from my 24 year old brain, but I was like, this is horrible. Why are all of my friends at our happy hours? just talking about how much we hate our jobs. This is not okay. So I love that we're doing this little, like I'm zoned out just thinking about this problem and how we're not going to put up with that anymore. I love this so much. And thank you for sharing that because it kind of goes back to this whole overarching theme, which I didn't realize was going to be the overarching theme of our conversation, but it's becoming it is this neurodivergent blessing. And I read a book when I was younger called the gift of dyslexia. And I think it works with any neurodivergent child or adult is that because you and I don't get satisfaction or don't fit the system the same, it's this idea that we do actually think differently where we're willing to go. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't be talking about spending eight hours of our day miserable. And for consultants, it's about like 18 hours a day for you guys most time. (laughs) Something Um, like that. And the blessing of that you're willing to then go, oh, it shouldn't be this way. Let me go build what should be. Mm. To me, this is, wow, I, I hope that this feels as redemptive to others as it does to me to listen to this conversation, because now it's clicking into place, meeting someone who resonates with this problem so much that God, what man meant for evil, God used for good. And that famous verse at the end of Genesis, I think in chapter 50, and how according to the world standards, it will look like you're a failure or stupid or not right or not getting it or not efficient or whatever, or bratty, or you need everything to be colorful and interesting, but God meant it for good. And we get to see the ideal and then be crazy enough to say, I've been coloring outside the lines anyways, let's just keep on doing it for the glory of God and the good of others. So that's so much part of it is this idea that the freedom that comes from being rejected so many times in your life, where you're just like, what the hell? Okay, yeah. one more time. And I think that goes into the career journey is I've had a career journey where I take the risk because I can't. Yeah. 
And I've been used to that. And this idea of like being used to failure is one blessing that we got growing up is that you're used to failing a lot. Yes. And so it's no longer scary, but it also, it only becomes scary when, to your point about the world standards, you'll seem stupid in comparison to them, Yeah. but they'll be your standards if you choose to take them on. And Mm. so if you, that's the biggest thing is that if that's the only standard, you know, then you're a failure to yourself too. And you're a failure if you can't communicate your standard to the world standard. If you work on a PC mentality and the world's a Mac, unless you can communicate between those two operating systems, no one's going to understand you. Yeah. And so it is an extra skill set, which goes into fee actually is that I, my mom put me into competitive debate because I needed to learn how to communicate. She'd always say, Julia, you're saying something smart. I just have no idea what you're saying. And so she's such a good mother. Oh my gosh, this woman. But that's part of what I've realized so long is that it's that support system that changes whether you think the standards of the world are your standards or if they give you the freedom to make your own standards. Um, So I have so much empathy for those that didn't have mothers like ours that were like, I will give up my career. Mm -hmm. I'll put my family in a situation where we don't have two incomes Mm -hmm. so I can homeschool my children Mm -hmm. or whatever therapy is necessary for homeschooling isn't always the option. Um, So I think going back to your question though. Yes. Um, What if, if it seems natural to transition into, I'm sure people are asking in their minds like I am how the heck did she how was she such a boss in those conversations and like actually ask for more and or I'm sure it sounds like you've even negotiated um maybe what the position looks like if not early on probably later in life so how I'd love to hear your frameworks or methodologies overarchingly on how you advise, especially women, but any professional to enter negotiations? Sure. Um, I think at first to be a negotiation is often put up in a zero sum mentality mm-hmm. where it's you against them. And there's this idea of a transactional negotiation versus a relational negotiation. And the transactional negotiation is you on the streets of Israel bartering because you're never going to meet that person again. And so it really is about getting the lowest number. But a relational negotiation is more about building trust and recognizing that you're there to collaborate, as Chris Voss says, like a collaboration type of negotiation. And to me, that goes down and even to the prep of a negotiation where, and it goes back into if you really think what a negotiation is, it's a persuasion about both trying to get people trying to get value. And so my mentality of negotiation actually comes out of my debate and public speaking background of Aristotle's means of persuasion, ethos, pastos, and logos. And the biggest thing he says is that you need to go back to a point of common ground. Where do you both agree? Because you're not going to ever persuade someone unless you find the branching off point of where you agree. So a negotiation isn't on us versus them. It's about getting back to the point of where you both agree and then building off of that. And so to me, it's about value. How do we both agree on the value? We're both at a conversation where the person across from me needs me and wants value for the company. The reason why a job exists is because there's a need to be filled. 
that's it. Mm -hmm. There's a value that needs to be created that they don't currently have. And so thinking of a job description, not as a task to be done, but a here's a need and a value that needs to be filled. Okay. What value would bring the company if that was filled? Mm -hmm. So I find that kind of a tactical move from a transactional to a relational negotiation, and then also coming to a perspective of this is us trying to come up with a value both for you and I. And if it doesn't work for both of us, it's not going to work for either of us. And if I'm trying to be adversarial or conquer you, I win this negotiation. That's not going to be a perspective that serves either one of us, but it's about the idea that, okay, how do I teach or inform in this negotiation to get them to a point where we go back to our, what we agree on and then build from that. So I guess that's the first thing I think through is like changing this narrative. That's a very masculine testosterone built us versus them competitive to a collaboration mentality. Um, And to me, that changes how I look at the tactics because I don't know about you and how you've seen people teach negotiation, but it's very much a prep to know your value, prep to know the responses to their objections, prep your walls up basically so that whenever they poke it, you have a response back. Uh, Make sure that you ask the highest value you can. You're the most valuable, know your worth. And it's this very self-focused. Yes. It's adversarial. It's transactional. Exactly. As you're describing like trip to China, why not just like (laughs) assume that they're marketing it up like 90%. So you just go for 10%. I did that so many times and it was fun, but that's not the attitude that you want with the, I'm going to be around these people for years, potentially as my work family, I'm going to have like, (laughs) you know, my work friends, these are my, this is my boss. Mm -hmm. You want it to be relational. So this is amazing. Yeah. And part of that's like how we go through the negotiation process at fee is teaching you ways to build trust that are applicable in any meeting Mm -hmm. and like a, a, a scoring system almost you can always have in your mind of, okay, if this is how we are going to build up trust and you do that in the negotiation, but also it's this switch from, yes, like you said, this is a long-term focus view, but the other thing is it's actually more persuasive. So if I want to earn more and be more strategic, it's not about countering you or being an aggressive towards you. It's actually about making it so that you yourself come to my side through discovery questions. So that's kind of where we change the tactics. So when you come from the mindset of this is a collaboration, not only because we're building trust for long-term, but also it's going to persuade someone better, then it goes into the tactics. And so you teach tactics differently when you're not teaching a zero-sum negotiation. And so some of the tactics that I think of help people go remove the intimidation factor of negotiating, where it becomes a skill set. In a way of life. Like Chris Voss says, every conversation is a negotiation. Everything. Read his book. I've said this like four podcast episodes in a row. Read, never split the difference. It's so so good. good. Also, his uh, masterclass is great. If you don't love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. The thing is though, here's the issue. You can read as many books as you want. And this is where fee came out of. It's like, there are so many resources on how to negotiate, but it's not until you practice them and have someone that says, you did that great, try this. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was what I learned in debate coaching when I was younger is I can read every article on persuasive speaking, 
but it's not until you have a coach there that helps you. And like ballet is same. You can watch as many videos and read as many books on how to be a ballerina, but it's not until you have your teacher turn out your thighs like and like ripping you apart. Yeah. Tell you that, oh, this string is on your head and it pulls to the ceiling. Um, or, you know, slapping you or something oh. unethical like that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we like could talk forever about how. Ballet dancer or ballet teacher should probably be in jail right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. Most competitive sports is just a way for children to be abused. Sorry. Uh, uh so back to negotiating lighter subject so you can so the, the reason why i say that is that i can give you the three lists of know your values so you're going to go to Glassdoor, you're going to talk to people you're going to make your budget that you can find online mm-hmm. i can give you a list of those so yes that's necessary to know your value but why do you know your value it's not for an adversarial conversation it's knowing your value and this is what i this is what gets me like working at 10 p.m. at night is because one of the women that I was coaching, she was going into a job negotiation, her first job out of college. And she was going and going like, I have, I don't know what I'm going to offer them. Like I have no skill sets. I don't know what I'm here for. And we went through the process of prepping her for a negotiation, which part of that is knowing your value, where we were able to say, look at the skill set that you got here. You were one of their interns, which means that you know their systems you know the team, you know how they work, you have specific value to them because now they don't have to go hire someone. They don't have to go train someone. They have already invested in you. So it switches it from a know your value because you're going to ask for a number, but it's know your value. So you walk in the first day of work, having something to offer and it changes it from a, I'm going to take whatever the offer they give me, which is a zero some kind of negotiation to an executive level conversation that you're at the table that says, here's what I have to offer. Here's what you need. And if you don't have the value they need, you shouldn't be at that table. If you don't have the value, then you shouldn't be asking for the offer that's Mm -hmm. higher than that valuation. So it's really about knowing what you're worth in a realistic mindset. But oftentimes, especially women, we underestimate ourselves. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm sure that you have conversations about that all the time of, okay, I'm going to go talk to Julia Rose because I want, sure. I want, I don't want to miss out on a million I don't want a million bucks. Yeah. I want to negotiate my salary. And so I'm going to get into the conversation around sharpening or creating a skill of negotiation. But ultimately I'm imagining there's some big emotional blocks and limiting beliefs that come up that need to be addressed of I I'm not good enough what if they find out that I'm a fraud Mm -hmm. what if all of a sudden three months in their graciousness runs up and I haven't learned fast enough and they think gosh why why did she ask for more that was Mm -hmm. unwarranted how do you respond to some of those really tough questions that I'm imagining you're privy to Yeah. It's something that I'm going through right now myself. It's not something that stops. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talk about the imposter syndrome and the imposter syndrome was, is something similar to that, but there's a reality of it. Um, And so that's one thing we talk about a lot is this imposter syndrome. And actually it's a misnomer and it's misdiagnosed because it was designed in the seventies when we didn't really think about racial bias, gender bias, Mm -hmm. systematic oppression. 
So the only standard was to say the typical standard, this is how you run a meeting. This is how you're successful as a cisgendered white male. That was a standard. And so whenever anyone succeeded, you either had to be better than that standard as a minority, a woman, um, a non-traditional person in the workspace, just like as we have at having to be neurodivergent, mm-hmm. you either have to be better than that standard to even be acceptable, mm-hmm. which is where this idea of the imposter syndrome was kind of created is that you don't feel like you're worthy of the standard because you can't seem to ever meet it. But there's also that idea that am I good enough skill-wise? So me, everyone's like, oh, fake it till you make it. Um, and to me, competency work. is confidence. Yeah. I hate this idea of, oh, just be confident, do a power pose. Yes, there's like certain things you can do to create confidence. Mm-hmm. But to me, I'm not confident unless I'm competent. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And also cue back to the ADHD conversation. If you cannot just like be honest with yourself, if you really feel that you cannot develop a competence in the subject matter of your work or your field, because there is simply not interest there, please do yourself a favor and allow yourself to be in the track where your interest and the wind is behind you. It's in your sails and you have energy to devote to your work. That was for me. I started, I always felt that I categorized myself or considered myself to be a high achiever. And once I followed that core value or identity, I just thought, okay, well, high achievers get at the time, and it's still very, uh, very much is popular in the business school I went to, to just get a consulting job, management consulting or tech consulting. So I did that, but I did not factor in that I really wasn't interested whatsoever in that area of tech consulting services that I had been hired for. And so just slowly, 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 it ate away at me that my performance was slipping and I was horrified. I was horrified. I had never thought I was a low performer and I uh, meet quite a few high performers who are starting to feel these effects. They're like, wait, I don't really know myself anymore. I'm not lazy. I'm not stupid. Why is my performance slipping? And it's just because I cannot be interested in this. And so therefore there's that lack of confidence. And so I love this point that you're bringing up of, can we just acknowledge that confidence is earned? It's not something that you just puff up or make up. Oh, it's so true. And going back to your, and I love that you brought that up is that it's also not just a neurodivergent thing. We've had to deal with it like in a very tense way, but everyone has their limits. And so if you Mm -hmm. don't know where your strengths are and your weaknesses are, you can't self-select for success. And so part of that is having, that's why kind of where I, there's, to me, there's like three parts of it is knowing where your strengths and weaknesses are, but how do you do that? And how do you know you're not undervaluing yourself? To me, that happens in community. So I remember one of the uh, biggest inspirations for Fee and how we're building it right now, which is a cohort system where you have a mentor who's kind of like your wing woman who can help you kind of like what you do is like give you career guys and advice, but also it's a group of other people that you have to invite a friend to come with you because I was sitting in a, my senior year at college trying to write a cover letter. And I was like, I have no value. I can't figure out how I do this, what I say. Another friend was trying to write her resume. She's like, I've done nothing. How do I put this on here? Another friend was looking for a job. And as you probably know, women 
disqualify themselves for roles that they would be great for. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we feel like we need to, and it's not just women, it's oftentimes any minority say we need to be perfect. We have to meet 10 out of 10 qualifications because what happens if I don't meet two of them and I fail miserably, I have to meet all 10 because I have to be perfect. Where men on average will apply for a job if they meet six out of 10. They're like, I mean, one over them, like half of it, I'll try it. I can do it. I, they give themselves that leeway to fill their yeah. other roles. So part of it was all of us going, hey, wait a second. You were in the debate team, which had this amazing budget and you budgeted that. And you also did travel, which is exactly what you're going to have to do for this EA position. Or you would be amazing at this role. And we'd start sending each other things because you need other people that know you to help you say, see your value. But then you also need those who are more experienced who don't know you to give you advice on how to create that next potential. So you don't have that limiting factor of they know your weaknesses. And so that's kind of how fees developing is it's come from one-on-one -on -one with me to now we're creating these wing women cohorts because of that very fact that you need to have an understanding of what your value is to go into the negotiation, but also to figure out what you want to do next and also negotiating your role. And part of that goes to what you said, which I'm so glad you brought it up because I've had to self-select roles and managers mm -hmm. because my first job out of my first technical job out of college, got it through one of those like, you know, crazy stories of they do the weird cover letter because I knew I had to be different. So did that, got the role. They said, do we only have a sales role? Part of what I wanted to do was learn sales because I needed to learn every part of a startup to be able to run one. I said, sure, I'll do this, but I don't want to be sales for long-term. I want to be able to do other things. And through six months of being on the sales team, realizing that like, I, that wasn't where my core competency was. I wasn't doing great. And my manager and I had to have a conversation. They ended up not opening up these other roles that I would transition into. So I was like, Hey, you know, and I know that this is not a role for me. I either need to quit or I need to be fired. So technically, and we we're in the middle of a pandemic during this time. And so there's like other issues with the role um, where I was like, I need to leave. But technically I got fired from my first job because the manager and I both knew that role was not where I should be. And that company, I ended up not wanting to be a part of anymore for some internal reasons. Um, and so the best way to have me leave was to fire me so that I could get Unemployment. Unemployment because we're in a pandemic. And so yeah. it's one of those moments where you're like, am I a failure? Mm. Under the world standards, I'm a failure. But then I had to keep thinking to myself, wait a second, why did I have that job? I wanted to learn sales. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn what a high growth startup was like. Yeah. And it kind of, like you said, like one of your biggest themes through your career is that you're a high achiever. Mm -hmm. One of my themes is I don't want to waste time in a role for a year. A, a world standard says stay at a job for a year because that proves you're consistent. Yeah. I want to get out fast, especially in yeah. the beginning of my career. Yeah. That's and like so, the start. Isn't that a piece of startup advice? Yeah. Like hire slow, fire fast. Yeah. And also fail like, quickly. And I took that for myself. It's like, I need yeah. to fail quickly in a role and not stay on. Yeah. 
Oh my Um, gosh, please talk more about that because that's another, you were just hitting all of the most meaningful issues. One, what if you feel different and like you're failing according to the world's rubric? Uh, How do you create your own career? How do you negotiate not only just compensation, but the role itself? And then what happens when you do all of those things? You take your design and your strength into consideration. You find an extremely promising role. And then only experience will tell you six months in confirmed. I know what I need to know. This is no longer efficient with anyone's time. How, how have you, cause am I correct in saying you have had shorter term experiences more than just that one? Yeah. So my, my version after that was, so after that role, I kind of took a pause on career. I said, I had an experience where I realized I was starting fee at that time and I was in that role and it gave me kind of this aha moment of startups are what I love. I love that the world should be this way. And they're the kind of people that say, I'm not going to just say the world should be this way. I'm going to do it. And that's something that like, for me is one of my deepest, like insecurities, but also strengths from like, if I have a problem with something I have to do something about it. Or I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> and so I realized that like startups are my people. I just, mm-hmm. they are my people, but the startup system is broken. Mm-hmm. We have at that time, less than 2% of venture capital funding going to female startups. Less than 2%. Oh, don't even, and not even like <laughs> Latina or black female founders. Yeah. Just the entire category, Jewel, the vaping company, got more yeah. funding in one year than all women put together. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing it's like, that's like, oh, these numbers are bad, but why is that bad? Yeah. I was at a startup where it was two tech bros from a high Ivy, the traditional standard, Ivy yeah. League education, had yeah. the network, dad was connected. Yeah got put on too early as 24 year olds. And it caused it so that myself, my manager and that, and the per, uh, my EA all left the company about the same time that I got fired. Oh gosh. Um, and I realized that's part of the issue mm-hmm. is that startups are getting funded that sh- shouldn't be funded or like they have a good idea, but they're, that's not a good system if that's the result. Mm-hmm. And the other result was, I kept meeting other women and realizing that we're really, we're not negotiating more equity when we get VC funding. We are negotiating worse deals. We aren't getting into the door. Oh my uh, the fact that only 12% of decision makers in venture capital were women. Mm-hmm. And so, and why is that an issue? Half the, the example of this is menopause. Half the population, 51%, will ha- deal with menopause in their lives. If men went through menopause, we would have studies on what are the best solutions for them. We would have an entire industry of products. We would have resources yeah. for this great need that's in the society. But right now we have a over a few billion dollar industry that's just barely being tapped because majority male investors aren't going to start investing in a menopause startup. So that was what I realized when I left this company, I had this epiphany of like, I've lived this experience realizing, Mm -hmm. oh, that's a problem that I want to fix. How do I fix that? And I realized 
I can either go to grad school, go be one of those Ivy League people, get my master's, create this continual issue of gatekeepers and loopholes to jump through where my network is just a bunch of other Ivy League grads, which is great. There are certain people that that's great for them for me, but I was like, I don't know if I can ethically do that. If there's a whole lot of other reasons that we're not even talking about. Oh yeah. I don't really, uh, I don't need to get into don't support higher education as much as you would think. (laughs) Same. Um, but then again, it goes back. I, I, then I have those like dark nights where I'm like, I actually do need my Ivy League education to break down the doors that I, that it creates, but that's another question. Um, so all that to say, I realized I have to go find the non-traditional path again. Okay. Done that before. How are we going to do it? I either need to start my own company and exit. Okay. That's a really big shot that that's actually going to happen. Like that's very rare that I can do that and then transition into VC or have enough money to angel invest. Fee is that my, my option there. Good founder experience. Okay. So fee needs to stay. Cause I was thinking about getting, I was thinking about dropping it yeah. at that point. Um, then I was like, okay, I can either go get my Ivy league education. That's not how I want to do this. I can either go work for a startup that exits or I go work for an accelerator that helps build into this. And so I spent pandemic time researching every single accelerator, researching studies on who was doing what on and finding out that accelerators actually don't help the investment gap. Why? Because they de-risk companies. And so a woman, female-run company and a male-run company that both get de-risked, it actually increases the gap in investment because now the male company is more de-risked. Realizing that women- What does de-risked mean? So uh, an accelerator is going to say, when an investor looks at an investment, they're going to look for risks of it. So an accelerator helps you de-risk this investment for the venture capital. So they're going to help you build a team. They're going to help you get MVP, which will um, in a viable product that will then test to see if you have market viability. So it's this oh. idea like, let's remove the risks to this investment mm-hmm. so that you look more helpful. The problem is gotcha. men are judged on their potential. So how much is your market? How much will you be able to grow? Women are often judged and ask questions on their challenges. So why haven't you fixed this problem or how did you handle this issue? And the problem is at early stage startups, all you have is your potential. And when you're beginning of your career, all you have is your potential. So it goes back to negotiating as a woman is you're going into this interview negotiation, startup negotiation with the presumption that you're going to be judged on your weaknesses, not your strengths. So how do you combat that bias? Which is why I realized fee is so important to me is that it teaches women to combat the bias in the negotiation because often negotiations are taught either non-gendered or non-biased informed uh-huh. or they're taught by men. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all of that realizing, so going back to career-wise, I was like, oh, this same issue that I'm seeing and what I want to do with my career which is change that number is the same issue that I'm realizing on an individual scale for women. Okay. How do I go do that? And so I realized that I need to go learn all the facets of a startup. Mm-hmm. So I did a consulting opportunity in an incubator that specifically focused on impact investing and working with minorities. I then did a um, kind of consulting full-time role for a high growth startup and a 
as on the product side and running a product for them. And then through that, realizing, okay, at each one of those, I said, hey, do you want to stay on? And I realized that if I stayed on, it would be a great opportunity. But would it be the most strategic thing to get me to these numbers? Changing the number on women being invested in and changing the number about the wage gap and wealth gap for women. Um, and so to answer your question, like, how do you decide to move on or when it's not working? It's not easy. For me, it took me a week of having panic attacks at 4.38 a.m. Yeah. to decide to leave a role. That's just real. I it's just real. literally threw up when I was telling my boss that I was turning in my resignation. Yeah. It felt awful. Yeah. The whole three days before, I have realized, especially as I've made bigger and bigger decisions in my career, that... I need to allow myself to have a solid amount of time to form the decision, which it doesn't have to be that long. As long as you open the gates to emotional and mental honesty, where you really let yourself tell yourself what's right and what's wrong and what needs to change. But once you formulate your decision, I have realized that about three days before execution day, like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to announce it, or I'm going to ask it, or I'm going to send that. I just have to know that my brain will come up with every single reason and be fully convinced that this is really, really stupid, but I have receipts. I have journal entries. I have conversations with advisors to show that you still have to go through with it. And so thank you for saying that's just real. Also, it goes back to your point in that it's competency. It's doing that work that makes you then confident in the decision. It's not just going to happen. It's calling those advisors. It's going through the mental and emotional work of, is this the right role for me? And having to make those decisions. And so I think it's a great point in that, that also your brain's designed to do that. If you think about it, our brain's designed to tell us, hey, let's be safe. Yeah, the subconscious mind's number one job, like the vast majority of everything that you are and everything that controls you is your subconscious mind. And the number one directive of the subconscious mind is self-preservation, which is why fear is a huge feature of our life. And so you could just thank it and remind yourself that your conscious mind has done the work and move on. <laughs> and, and, and one caveat I'm thinking in this is that both of us have, to your point of like, oh, jumping jobs a lot or quote unquote jumping jobs and the negative connotation around that, which yeah. is the original question is the reason why we're going into such a deep backstory instead of just saying, oh, I jumped because of X, Y, Z reason is because for certain career paths, that's detrimental. So a friend of mine who wants to work for the state department needs to have X amount of time needs to show that they're stable in our roles as, as a founder and a CEO or working in startups, that's not as valued. Mm-hmm. So it's also recognizing that the people that are giving you advice need to be the same advice at the same stage in the same context as you. Mm. It's the same thing yes. with startups. Yes. Like the same advice that I give a, a beginning startup would kill a startup at a different stage. Wow. Oh my gosh. This like really is the eloquent way to describe why well-meaning advice from parents. It's I'm not saying that you throw out all their career advice by any means or um, anyone that is even 
one, two, or three generations removed from you, you have to know which pieces to accept and which to take with a grain of salt because the lens on life, culture, and its rules of operation has changed dramatically. So consider your sources, consider your sources. And even to your friends, it's not just generational, is that, and also recognizing that you're going to have to accept they'll disapprove of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. That the friends, it's hard. It's hard to think, oh, the friend that really values job stability is going to think I'm insane for switching jobs Mm -hmm. so much. But part of it's like, I know that I had other jobs lined up every single time. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what I was doing there. I knew that I was still building it. I was leaving in a way that didn't ruin those relationships. And so it's, it's reminding yourself to do the work so that when you do leave or you do switch or you do that risky thing, you de-risk yourself and recognizing that other people are going to think you're crazy. I had, a, I, had a friend say, I had a friend say to someone else that Julia's living on the edge in like a negative connotation. And it got back to me. And I was like, that's funny that she said that on a negative connotation because that to me is a compliment. Yeah, question mark. Wait, no, I was, I was like, wait a second. Exactly. To me, that's like, yes, I am yeah. going full speed and making quick decisions and pivoting and not... Yeah. just being stable in a, to me, a bad way, stable. And like, I'm making the right decisions, but I am very precise. Um, and being okay with that, that people are going to say, Oh, they're on the edge. Yeah. If you're on the edge. exactly. And if your career path is to be stable and everyone else is jumping off and doing crazy stuff, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But it kind of like, it goes back to, you know, you know, you're talking at the beginning is that if you, have someone else's standards as your standards or you can't communicate your standards of what you see as success then you're just getting to this really bad loop of self-hatred and defeat you're so eloquent with closing ties (laughs) or closing loops of the conversation that is such a meaningful theme really just the fact the underlying uh enabling factor in most any topic that we've touched here is you know yourself, know your strengths, your values, your ultimate vision. So you could always work backwards and stand your ground, whether you're making a bold ask or questioning things or a bold decision. I'd love to know how you make like what, what process, because the same way, like knowing yourself or knowing your value is very vague, but it's not as helpful. So I'd love to hear like how, what's like the last little bit that you found a way that you're like, Ooh, I did that. And then I knew myself better. And I now have this metric in my head. Yeah. I think, um, this is one of those things, like you said, with negotiation, you could go and read many books, but just the embodiment and seeing the through line in your own life and noticing patterns and getting advisors around you who can act as a mirror. That's really what you were saying earlier of why you've so brilliantly designed the cohort model for uh, fee is that it's just really not going to make any difference in your life. If you don't have a mirror, it's just not. Uh, And so uh, for me, it was practically understanding 
And I have a whole series of questions that I have my clients really journal through, and then we talk through each of them. And then I also have a guided exercise in which they uh, solicit the counsel of the stakeholders in their life, loved ones, long-term friends, coworkers, shorter-term acquaintances that just get that quick taste of them. And um, so I took myself through that process. And honestly, on the most basic level, this has been advised a hundred times, probably for anyone they've heard it on a podcast, but why not actually try it? Like give it a really good try to see what was that role on my heart? Like who have I always been? And the funny thing is I, I always knew what I I'll say what I knew before and what helped me make the decision to understand what my unique strengths are, what my vision is for my life and my core values, and then the decision I made. And then I'll tell you what I realized afterwards. And I have to be very careful not to give the afterwards decision because the post-decision clarity that came was, oh, I've always been a career coach. Unfortunately, not because anyone was really asking me for advice, but because I was always trying to... um, create programs. And I didn't even realize until afterwards that in college, I created this TED Talk, TED Talk style event that now has been formalized into May's Business School at Texas A&M. And the Business Honors Program has taken it on. It's been going for seven years. And I always wanted to give people a cast of vision and to help them see, like you're saying, the world as it should be and to let themselves really feel that ache and then do something about it and to empower them to go and be the unique solution in the way that they were built to be able to do it. And so that was kind of the afterwards, but the before I just looking back as a kid, I, and I invite anyone else to reflect on what did you always do spontaneously? Mm -hmm. I could say, what did you always do spontaneously? Well, but honestly, why don't you also consider what did you always get in trouble for? I think I borderlined annoying on how much I talked about my goals and my vision for my life. And so uh, you have to learn how to rein it in, but that it was what I always wanted to talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. So why don't I help people along that vein? Um, But what did you get always get in trouble for? Just like uh, another, um, person I love listening to her podcast her name is Patrice Washington and she's a famous speaker now she always got in trouble for having something to say speaking up talking too much in class soliciting her opinion or like raising her hand too much in class Mm -hmm. another entrepreneur uh he's a personal finance advice guru on YouTube Graham Stephan he always got in trouble because he flunked out of school because he didn't see the point in it because by the time he was 14 he already learned how to make like a thousand bucks a week. I'm doing he cracks me up because he's always just like, let's do the system. And then he makes fun of the system for it. So he's like, okay. <laughs> I love his like thing about like, everyone's like, oh, subscribe to my channel. But he makes it so much like, of course, I'm, like I don't subscribe to anyone, but I literally subscribe to him just to like mess up the YouTube system and how he like makes it like feel rebellious of like, of course, we're going to do this like little thing that helps someone else. <laughs> Smash the like button. Yes. Yes. And I, yeah, I love how he, he takes this, like he sees the system, figures out how to, game it and then kind of is still outside enough of it to make fun of it yeah that's what I love actually 
realizing that pretty much everything is a game. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's all a game. But um, I hope that I was eloquent enough in responding to your question. And I so appreciate that you invited that because you're so right. Isn't it kind of like, oh, when you land an inspiring conversation on not sharing, but how do you do that? That's my biggest thing. Oh gosh. Because there's so much of the, you should, and not enough enough of the how. How, yeah. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say in addition or response? along the lines of how did you start to really get to know like what you value and what your vision is it sounds like from your story I just heard a lot of um you looked at what's that famous quote look at life as it is and don't turn away you really looked at a problem and you just didn't put it up to the powers that be that's so annoying (laughs) you yeah yeah it's decided to do something you paid attention to what really bothered you it's true though it's that's um recognizing when something went from a this is an issue to getting me frustrated i realize i make most of my life decisions out of frustration um And when I start working on it, get excited. I was like, this isn't how it should be. And just accepting that. So like recognizing what motivated a lot of my decisions is this isn't how it should be. Um, The second thing to me is doing the thing. So it goes into like Mm -hmm. startups is I can theorize over the AB of what question I have, but it's not until I actually do the thing, which is why I tried sales, try product, do the thing. Because then you're going to actually find out what you're doing um, and being okay with failing fast. And failing hard. Uh, one of my biggest things, I love the question that you had of like, what was the thing that you couldn't stop doing? Or what mm-hmm. was the thing to me, one of my favorite questions to ask, and I ask myself, and it's kind of my guiding point is what was a time in a project that you remember n- not remembering time working on? Yes. Oh, and that's what, a question and, and, that and I asked. How did you do it? Like, what was the project that you had a vision for and saw the whole vision and then was able to execute that? Um, and what was it about that project? And so what I realized for me, my, like the, the, for me, it was, a a, the most clear one was a, a 10 minute play I wrote in college where I had the idea was able to just, it was so easy for me to just sit there, get that dopamine rush and like fully write out the script. And I knew how I wanted it and manipulated it. And then the production style of it. And what I loved, and I realized what I loved about that was there is something that didn't exist. I had the idea and this vision in my head and that like struggle to pull it into reality. And then it came to being, and it wasn't just like, oh, I like art or I like plays and I do, it wasn't, oh, I want to write plays. That's not where I should go with my career. Cause that's the easy thing to say, oh, you loved producing a play and directing Mm -hmm. a play. I shouldn't be a playwright and a director. I love that. But what it was is I like taking ideas and making them into realities. Oh my gosh, you, that's perfect. It's really every question that we've said, like reflect on this, reflect on how you were as a kid, reflect on what bothered you, whatever. Then you asked more importantly, what was it about that thing? Who was I, or what was it about me that drew me to that or allowed me to accomplish it? Because that's the key question. Otherwise, everyone would just say, I like movies. I'm going to be an actress or a production assistant. I like gaming. I'm going to be a video game designer. And that's really not it. 
man, (laughs) I so, so appreciate you. And this conversation has been obviously very, very significant to me um, for all the ways that I didn't realize God was going to bless me just by having a friend to relate to in more ways than I thought. Um, I love that we didn't talk about anything that we like had like thought about what we're talking about. Um, (laughs) But like all of the things were just like ended up being a completely different conversation, which is why I love talking with you. It's because we could talk on so many different things. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's a treasure. I'm curious um, if there's anything from our conversation that you would really just love to reiterate or underline again, like, hey, here's my encouragement to you based on my story. Get the people around you that love you. Like, to me that if I think back through it, it's, and we always talk about like, oh, networking is the most important thing. 80% of the job markets closed uh, to career. It's like, oh, the people that matter, your life, it's the people that matter. Um, mm-hmm. But if you think about it, if we didn't have our moms to tell us, hey, there's another standard, go find that standard. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have my family, my dad say, okay, go do it. We'll support you. Um, if I didn't have the friends that showed me where I was lacking or the mentors who have called out what my potential was and the fact that every single one of the roles I've gotten has been through knowing someone, demonstrating value to them, and then having them connect me to the next role because they see that, oh, you show up, you do the thing. Um, So to me, that is, I feel is so important is to have the people in your life that see the best thing about you and cultivate that, but then show up for them. Um, And that to me is like where I'm realizing the focus is more about and it kind of goes back to negotiation. Is it like the strategy in the negotiation isn't to think about you and what you need out of it. The strategy in the negotiation is to say, what are their fears? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is their issue? What would, what would they be easy to say yes to? And then you create discovery questions that lets them do the process of the discovery yourself, themselves where they come to the conclusion for you. Yes. And that's how you run a negotiation. It doesn't go, I want this strange salary. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think that to me is where I see the biggest like theme is we've talked about this theme of like creating your own standards, um, or fi- really knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, but also recognizing that it took the people to fill my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So it was my friend who was willing to stay up late and edit my paper for me. It's my current boss who says, send me the document before you send it out and I'll proofread it for you. Mm-hmm. It's the team that says, Hey, Julia's not going to be good at this. Let's go find someone that is good at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's what I love is, and having conversations like this, where mm-hmm. would you have had the realization or the discovery about knowing yourself mm-hmm. if Kelsey hadn't asked me this question? 
Yeah. <laughs> then this is why I think the if I could make the kind of pun of, based on my company name of the called career is one that you say, wow, this was by the grace of God working through other people. I had to knock on the doors. I had to ask. I had to seek. But man, he comes back in spades and he works and he speaks through people. And then you get to the end of your career and you don't want to say that you're a self-made woman because that would be a total lie. And if you had to do it self-made, you'd have the most boring career of all time for what a trophy that's like, I did it all myself and I hated it. And now oh, yeah. I have no friends to party with. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's, I, I love that so much because it's so true in that for yeah. such a long, I, I still do it is that when I, when I say talk about fee, I'm technically the only full-time member. Um, but I still say, we, we are doing this. Yeah. We are doing that. Cause I recognize that it's all these mentors and friends who have helped me build this that it's not just mine. Um, and so I love that idea that it's it's really self-made is the big burden. That's too high a cost for me. Oh yeah, not worth it. Not worth no. it. Amazing. Well, thank you for your faithfulness in your career, your perspective, your generosity and your story. And that honestly is built off of you being generous to so many other people. And so thank you for sharing for, with us. And now classic question, how can people be a part of your work with fee or stay in touch with you? Otherwise, essentially, where can we find you? Oh, Lord. Um, so I am a boomer and I need to get better at this. I am not good at the connected people that aren't right next to me. Um, so <laughs> yeah. at this point, it's either info at femalesequipped.com is probably the best way. We have an Instagram that I don't look at that I'm hiring an intern to do for me because my weakness, social media, my weakness, getting connected. That's not in person. Um, so info at femalesequipped.com or uh, my, you can probably find me at Julia Never Rose is the Instagram that I currently use. Um, and that will link to the fee page that is going to happen when the summer intern jumps on um help summer intern but, oh, oh yeah gosh, god I, bless so if you anyone's interested in a in an internship i currently mm -hmm. have an internship um for social and marketing for fee and then uh our dear friend maria pope and i i got her on as co-host of my podcast so <laughs> we are uh so if anyone wants to do a production intern for a podcast focusing on women founders called she built this where we study founders who are actually building the thing versus like the perspective of successful founders mm -hmm. and like their rose colored glasses. Uh, that is something that if anyone's interested in that or knows a founder, that would be a great person to, to interview, send them my way at info at femalesequipped.com because that is the next project, which got my capacity to know. I was like, after this, I have to say no to everything. Um, <laughs> So, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I made it right before the cutoff. This is, I am so grateful. Oh, you would, like you would always get grandfathered in, always. Oh, this is just us hanging out. I forget this is a podcast. So, sorry for all the listeners that we went on rabbit tails for. Uh, I hope y'all enjoyed. <laughs> yes, yes, this is just my excuse to talk to kills. Likewise, honestly, no, literally, if everybody wants to know 
which nobody does. Why I was so spotty in publishing a podcast last year is because I lost the perspective or I didn't allow myself rather to realize I only do this because I just want to have inspiring conversations with friends. That's it. It's an excuse. When there was some angle on it where I was like, this has to be ultimately like perfectly educational or whatever, the ADHD brain took over and it was like, you're not going to do that. So anyway. <laughs> when, it's, when it's too practical and like perfect, you're like, I don't really like perfect. No, like the little Kermit hood came on. It was like, <laughs> you will absolutely not do that. Yes, yes. This is what you should do technically, but it's not mm. what you're going to do. I love it. Not going to do. Yes. Oh gosh, I'm going to have to cold cut this conversation off. Otherwise I will never yes. let myself. We will never stop. All right. Yep. End. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this conversation, then go ahead and connect with Julia Rose Child on LinkedIn with a word of thanks for her kindness, her generosity, and her time in this interview. And also, while you're at it, if you're feeling generous, go ahead and take one moment to leave a quick rating and review below. And by the way, all the links in addition to um, Julia Rose's LinkedIn are below in the show notes as always. If you would like to work with me to discern what you feel called to do and practically land a great job that's aligned with it, you could apply for one of my one-on-one coaching spots for high-performing Christian professionals who are interested in making a meaningful career move in the next three to six months, whether that's landing a job at a company you admire or pivoting into a new career path altogether, you could head to my website and apply for a free career strategy session with me at kelseykemp.com slash services. The program is selective and the spots are limited. That is kelseykemp.com slash services. All those links below are, as you guessed it, in the show notes. <laughs> and while you're there, you could download any of my free career tools I've designed for you over at kelseykemp.com slash free. It's a really cute free tools page up at the top in the navigation bar. And you could also follow along with my latest tips and updates over on LinkedIn. See you next week on Answer the Call.